For many, right now feels upside down, and uncertainty is constantly swirling. Normal is this windstorm ever shifting, and it doesn't look like circumstances will calm anytime soon. But what if the change that we need is not our setting, but our sight? Not the external, but the internal. Not our fears, but our focus. First Peter is a letter, a banner, a compass, infusing steel in the spines of people in hardship, anchoring us in the reality that hope lies ahead. Rise City Church, how many of you guys love the Bible here? Good. I'm really glad because we have an awesome passage today. Uh, today we have um, one of those passages in the scripture uh, that are really just kind of soft, kind of light, kind of like seeker friendly. And uh, because this passage is so um, easy to teach, um, Jason passed it off to me. I'll just give you a little, a little like foretaste of what we're getting into to show you um, kind of just the encouragement that this passage has to offer. Uh, here's just a few things with today's scripture. Number one, it's going to talk about how Christians must obey the government. Check. Why slaves should obey their masters. Easy stuff, light stuff. How to endure suffering well and that we should endure suffering well. Oh, and this is one of, one of my favorites. Why husbands and how husbands and that husbands must understand their wives. And all the guys are like, I have never understood her. Can God ask me to do this? Like what? Oh, and by the way, if you don't understand your wife, uh, your prayers might be hindered. And uh, last, but certainly not least, uh, the ladies' favorite, wives must be subject to your husbands, and maybe even call him Lord. <laughs> and uh, why are we talking about this today? Uh, here's why, um, because I'm about to lose my job, number one, because uh, I have no tendency to say offensive things especially not on a Sunday, and I've never been called out for anything like that. But, but in the context of this passage, here's why we're talking about these things. Because what Peter has been talking about for week after week is that we are a hope-filled people if we follow Jesus. And when we live out of the reality of that hope, even in the most weird, difficult, and tense situations of authority in our lives, when we live out of that hope, we carry hope to a city that is dying for it. And so what we're going to talk about today actually is built out of 1 Peter uh, 2, chapter 12, which we concluded with last week. How many of you guys here last week? At the end of that passage, we were told that we are priests, people who, as Christians, represent God to the world. And he says, keep your conduct pure among those who don't know Jesus, keep it honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may also see your good deeds, your hope, the way that you live in light of Jesus, and they would turn around and glorify Jesus when he returns. And so here we're going to talk about carrying hope into everyday life. And um, we definitely need to pray about this one. So would you bow and, and pray with me? Father God, I thank you 
for the power of your word. God, I thank you that you are a God who cares about our everyday life, that you are a God who cares about the intricate and difficult details, not just of like revival in this city, but you care about the everyday stuff of our lives, of the workplace, of the home, of the way we lead, in the way that we are led. And Lord, um, you are so good to us, Jesus. Even the name of Jesus makes me tremble. Even the name of Jesus fills my heart with joy. And so Lord, would you show up in this time of teaching? Would you show up as we scan and survey these scriptures so that we might be filled with the hope of Jesus, that we may live for him in this city, so that they might know there's hope available to them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Grab a Bible or look at the screen. It says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and yet again, honor the emperor. What is Peter telling us here in his letter today? Uh, Here's what he's saying. Honoring authority reveals God's glory. When you and I honor the authority in our life, it actually reveals God's glory. And Peter is not here writing into a vacuum. Peter, um, just like you and me, knows what's going on in the current events of his uh, world, in the Greco-Roman Empire. And Peter and many of the disciples of Jesus, you just go study the Gospels in the book of Acts, are coming out of a religious worldview called Phariseeism and uh, Jewish zealotism. All right, so they're coming from being zealots and they're coming from being Pharisees. Many of the Christians who are getting saved left and right, even in Acts chapter, I believe, six, it talks about how Peter was leading the charge, and many of those who were Pharisees, many of those who were leading in synagogues, Jews, were coming to faith in Jesus and then turning around and leading for Jesus. And here's the worldview that these zealots, these Jewish zealots, are coming from. The Zealots uh, were a political movement, a conservative political movement among Jews who sought to overthrow the occupying Roman government. Some of you guys are like, man, I think I'm a Zealot. The term Zealots, uh, Zealots in English, comes from the Greek word Zealotes. That means emulator or zealous follower. And they believe three things. They lived out of three kind of things. This is the first one. They believed only Yahweh God should govern them and not the emperor, not Caesar. Like God's my only authority and I am just going to like, don't tread on me like it's me and Jesus and like guns, that's it. Not you, emperor. Number two, they refused to pay taxes. If you weren't sold on just not liking the government, now you have this. You're like, I am totally in. 
And then lastly, and probably the most intense, is they actually fought the government tooth and nail. A couple years after this passage was written to the Christian church, who he's saying, don't live like zealots. A couple of years after this, the zealot um, kind of uh, this militia that was uh, arose out of the Jewish zealots, they actually in 66 AD uh, uh, revolted against the Romans, and actually they were initially successful, which is an extraordinary feat, yet the Romans later actually came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, and then ultimately uh, leveled their temple. And so literally, when you think of the zealots, just a couple of years from this passage, the, the people who are now getting saved and, and following Jesus coming from this worldview, Peter writing to them, you need to think this, these zealots, and, and probably many Christians, to be honest, are coming from this, and they're saying, man, that, that, that lyric from like the band The Clash, you guys know what I'm talking about? The punk rock song, it's like, I fought the law and the... Law one, and Peter's like, guess what? Like, the law's gonna win, bro. And so we, we don't wanna be zealots, and yet they're coming from this worldview. And so he says instead, exemplify the humility and the gentleness of the Jesus that has saved your soul. And so look at what he teaches them, and I just wanna go over this. Here's what he's saying in the passage. Who should we honor? Like, let's clarify this. Well, number one, he says, we must honor every human institution in verse 13. Number two, he says that we should honor the emperor in verse 13 and 17. And he says it twice because he like knows they don't want to do it. Number three, he says that we must honor the governors, those who are sent by the emperor to establish justice in verse 14. And then lastly, if you were like, man, I don't know if like our government still applies, like maybe I don't have to submit. He says, actually, you need to honor everyone. Verse 17, he's like, make no mistake, you are to submit to authority. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are to represent Jesus' humility. That is the way we must live. And here is why, and I think this is really important. Um, because this is something that, like, man, kind of bristles against the American patriotic spirit, we need to know why as Christians. So here's why we should honor them. Number one, this is the will of God. Verse 15. And what is God's will? Well, number two, he says it is God's will that you would submit in this way so that it silences foolish people. In verse 15, kind of at the end there. And what does he mean by that? Well, he said it in the previous passage as I referenced earlier. He's saying, look, there is a watching world. And they want to know what does it mean to find hope. And you are to demonstrate that hope to people who don't know. Ignorance is not stupidity. Ignorance is like, I don't know Jesus yet. And he's saying you need to silence their arguments against Jesus so that they might find and know the precious love of Jesus. And so we silence that through our obedience. Number three, it's exercising our freedom as God's servants. Do you see what he's saying here in verse 16? This is really important. And here's why it's important. Because ultimately when we hear submit to authority, we're like, man, I don't want to do that. But because what we think in that moment is by submitting to authority, I'm sort of like becoming lesser or I'm like a loser and like I'm affirming what they're telling me to do or something like that. But here's the truth. What he's actually telling us is that you aren't doing this because you're a slave to them or you actually belong to them, we are doing this because we do not belong to them. 
And the greatest power that someone can have over you as they exercise authority over you in, their, in your life is when you become responsive in your frustration and your attitude towards that authority. Do you see that? That when we actually respond with this negativity and like, man, I hate this authority and so I'm just gonna fight against it. What's happening there is they have even more power over you, bro. Because what you're saying is, since they are telling me what to do, they also get to tell me how to feel. And so Peter is telling us, look, no, they don't get to decide what your heart posture is. You're a free person in Jesus And so you get to, out of joy in response to your king, Jesus, obey them insofar as you can to honor him and not submit in the internal sense to them by responding. And number four, he's saying, this is for the Lord's sake. Listen, when we submit to authority on earth, it actually glorifies our father in heaven. And so what we're doing is we're demonstrating how good he is. And so it brings life to us because we're set free in it. And it also brings glory to God and exposes that to those who need to know him. Um, So I went to Ozark Christian College, which is uh, out in the Midwest in uh, uh, Missouri. And uh, when I say Missouri, um, like you hear it in there, it's, it's miserable, Right, and uh, it, p- part of why it was miserable for me, it's actually a very beautiful place and beautiful, sweet people. P- people that are like, they have like kind of Midwest accents and they're honestly like the only people I've ever met that are like just everybody super nice. And so it was a good, it was a good place, but I was from Portland, right? Like I grew up here in the Northwest and when I got there, I was like, this is a different world down here. Like it just is night and day. Like e- people were like, oh, you have a tattoo. And I was like, I have like 14 tattoos, bro. Like, how old are you? I'm like, I'm 19. They're like, does everybody in Portland have tattoos like this? And I was like, yeah, they do. <laughs> they actually do. I'm like, whoa, you know. And so I was this kind of like outsider coming in. And I remember um, uh, I, I had these gauged ears, right? Like, basically, it's like a stretched out ear thing. And like, nobody cool does this anymore. But when I was, like, back in my day, it was like, man, you were hip. And so I had, like, these stretched out ears. And I remember going there. And one of the, like, serious rules at this Midwest Bible college was, like, we represent Jesus. And so, like, no earrings for boys. And I was like, okay, this is going to be tough. And I remember going to like the RA there and being like, hey, like I've gauged ears, like I'm taking them out and all this stuff. And he looks at me and he's a super sweet guy. I loved him. He goes, actually, you can wear those like in your, your dorm. That's totally fine. Just don't like wear them to class. I was like, okay, that's cool. And, and I wasn't like wanting to fight against this or anything. And so I was like, take them out, go to class, all this stuff. But at one point or another, like uh, and I felt so betrayed by this. One of the guys like in my dorm didn't know that I would have been told this. And he was like, like, reported me to the dean. <laughs> Why, God? <laughs> and I remember the dean, like, reached out to me. He's like, hey, you need to come to, like, the office thing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I, in high school? Like, I'm here studying the Bible. Like, I'm not, and I, I felt on my way, I'll never forget, I'm walking in, like, the cool of this day, and I'm going up to the dean's office, and I start making arguments in my head. Like, at this point, I was like, I was submitting to this, but now I want to, like, push my agenda. I want to get super punk rock on this thing. And I'm like thinking through like, because I knew the word pretty well at this point. I'm like in Leviticus and in the book of Exodus, there are two distinct passages where servants have an awl driven through their ears and it would have looked like a gauge. And so I'm like, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm just like making this argument in my head. I'm like rolling up to the dean of the Bible college. Like, let's go, bro. 
I remember the Holy Spirit in this moment was like, if you know the word, like you need to show that by submitting to this authority. And I'm like, Lord, dude is a straight up Pharisee. <laughs> Zealots, God, like what? And I remember the Lord just being like, dude, like that's not the spirit I put in you. What is that spirit? And I remember going in there and, and telling the dean, hey, I'm sorry. Like, please don't kick me out of school. And, and, and he understood that in that moment. But whatever happened with that situation, the most important thing that happened was that walk on the way to the dean's office. That walk where I did business with God and I learned that, like, man, submitting to authority isn't because they're always right. It isn't because, like, we agree. It's because I want to I know Jesus and submit to him. It's not letting these other powers come over me, but saying, man, I know Jesus, and I love Jesus, and I'll, I'll do what you're asking me to do. And we have this tendency, don't we, to, in regards to authority, and by the way, the whole passage here is going to be about authority, is we say, I shouldn't have to obey authority because the authority over me in this case is like legitimately evil. I never feel that. Like, I shouldn't have to submit to this authority. They're actually evil. Well, let me just give you a little more context about this passage. When is Peter writing here? You ever, like, go in your study Bible or, or whatever you got or online and, like, look up, like, what is the context of, like, these authors and what they're writing? I, I do that, and I'm your nerd friend, and so we're going to do that right now. The government was not friendly towards Christians at this time that Peter is writing. We'll put up a little chart here. Um, in 54 to 68 AD, there was a, a, a ruler called Nero over the Greco-Roman Empire. And if you went to junior year in high school, Nero's um, an interesting guy. Uh, in 62 to 63 AD, right in the middle of that reign, Peter writes this exact letter, 1 Peter. And so the question is, what's this authority Nero like? Well, I'll give you a quote from a historian uh, named Tacitus. This is literally a quote from, from the first century about Nero, like, contemporaneously, right? And so here's what he says, Tacitus. Mockery, this is in regards to how Nero treated Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs. That's why I don't like dogs and, like, animals. I don't want animals. They're getting torn by dogs and perished. Or were nailed to crosses. Or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Tacitus, if you study the Roman history here, it's, it's actually, uh, he's sort of soft-selling it here um, because he's kind of on Nero's side. Nero would take Christians and, uh, like, like, you know, hold your breath here, but he would, he would spear them down on spikes, impale them. And uh, in his garden, he would then, uh, four parties, light the Christians on fire so that he would have light for his party. And this is the government that Peter is writing in the midst of. And so um, the spirit of like, man, don't tread on me, uh, I think the Christians might have felt that. What do you think? But I do want to say this. There are two qualifiers, two biblical qualifiers to this. So I'm saying we need to submit to authority even when we do not like that authority, amen? Like, we don't like that authority, and yet we're called to submit to it. Here are two qualifiers for that. Because I'm not suggesting that you need to abuse, be abused, and I'm not suggesting that you need to sin. Uh, I don't think 
Peter here is, and, and we know this because of the rest of Scripture. So the, here's the first qualifier. This doesn't preclude Christians giving strong critique of government. And all God's people said, Luke 13, 31 through 32. At that very hour, Pharisees came, to, uh, came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he, Jesus, said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons. Now, pause right there, <laughs> all right? What's Jesus doing here? Jesus is not calling Herod, uh, the king over the Jews at this time, a fox uh, because he's like cute and like fluffy and red. It's like, he's not like, man, he's such a cute little fox. What Jesus is doing here in context is he is saying he is giving a strong critique of the methodology of Herod being deceptive and sneaky and cutthroat. Is he not? He's giving a strong critique. And is he just doing that to be mean and to like kind of flesh out here? Did Jesus ever sin? Well, if we believe the scriptures, then no, he never sinned. And so what's he doing? Now, you need to understand this. Jesus was the epitomal prophet, the capital P prophet of all time. He was a Messiah, but he also held the highest office of prophet. And he was functioning in the role of the Old Testament prophet and carrying out and concluding it in himself. And so what do the Old Testament prophets do? Well, part of their role was actually to call out the sin and sinfulness of kings, of evil rulers. As a matter of fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, I know we're going to do a lot of Bible here, but like, welcome to class, okay? Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet, who carries this office of prophet in Israel at this time, he goes to the greatest king who ever lived, David, and he calls out David because of his sin of killing one of his high officials in order to sleep with his wife. And so Nathan comes in, and he's like, let me tell you a story, David, about a guy who messed things up big time and was unjust. And David's like, let's condemn this guy. And Nathan looks at him and he says, you are the man. And David is convicted. And this is the role of the prophetic office to actually call out government when government defies God, which brings us to our second qualifier. And here it is. If you're taking notes, write this one down. When government requires disobedience to God, the Christian is required to disobey government. Acts chapter 5, 27 through 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. These are the disciples of Jesus in the early church, filled with the Spirit, preaching the gospel, brought in for discipline. And the high priest, he's a ruler, questioned them, and he is empowered by Rome, by the way, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, Jesus. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Verse 29. Listen to Peter's response. This is the same Peter, by the way. And Peter and the apostles answered, no, we must obey God rather than man. Amen? And so this qualifier is that we disobey government whenever they tell us to disobey God. And, and this is uh, uh, one of my favorite um, things that I heard growing up. My grandma, uh, she was French, born in France, like a French French gal, and as she grew up, she grew up in the 1930s and 40s as a little girl, and uh, so in France, the Nazis hadn't moved in, 
And the Nazis were overtaking that region she lived in. And so she would tell the story of how my great-grandfather, her dad, would fight the Nazis in the streets. And um, it was this awesome thing. And they were participant in both defending, protecting, and hiding Jews because the Nazis were calling them to reveal Jews so that they might be killed. And as a Christian family, they were like, no, we're not going to do that. And so they would hide Jews, and then ultimately, um, one of my favorite stories is how my grandma, she was so proud of this, she would go out in the streets as like, you know, whatever, eight, nine-year-old girl, she would see these Nazi soldiers marching, and she would look at them, and she said, I went like this. <laughs> I was like, yes! That is so punk rock, grandma! Let's go! She had some strong critique of evil rulers, Amen. And so when we are asked to defy God, we are to defy government. We are free to do that, and we are actually obligated as Christians to do that. Example, Hebrews 10, chapter, or excuse me, verse 25, we are charged to not forsake the gathering. And so when we're called to, as Christians to Jesus, we are also called to engage in the gathering of God's people. But here's the deal. Uh, when we have a, a, an edict, so to speak, today that says, hey, don't gather with God's people, we cannot obey that edict. We cannot obey that call. So we might have to get creative. We might have to do video. We might have to meet with mass. We might have to do all of these things, and we might want to under, you know, uh, come under the authority insofar as it is possible, but the truth is we cannot disobey God because we are called to serve him first and foremost, and then as his servants, serve the government well, even by demonstrating civil disobedience when appropriate. Okay, so with those qualifiers out there, uh, Peter is going to um, soften it a little bit more by now talking about masters and slaves. Look at verse 18. Servants, that's the word doulos, it's slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Uh, let me say this from the outset. This passage is not condoning, affirming, or putting forward slavery in any shape or form. Amen? Um, and, and some of you are concerned, like, maybe it is. It's not. What he's doing here is he is not affirming the system of slavery that was present in the Greco-Roman Empire, nor was he, at least in this passage, they do it in other places, trying to upend that system here. He's not affirming it. He's not yet trying to upend it. He saves that for Paul in other books of the Bible, and Paul does it. But here, he is describing how Christians should carry themselves within broken earthly systems. And that's good news for us, right? Because we live in a broken earthly system as well, amen? Like we live in, in broken systems like this, perhaps not as broken, and we are graced with an awesome system in comparison to this, and yet he's saying the Christian lives differently no matter the Christian's circumstances. And so, uh, but I do want to just biblically show you where uh, slavery, I could do four or five passages is condemned in scripture. But one of my favorites is uh, when Paul does it in 1 Timothy, he's coaching another pastor, verse 1-9, he says this. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just and the lawless, and uh, is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. 
for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. There's our word. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Is Paul like cool with slavery here? No, Paul is condemning slavery. He's saying this is not the way of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is a dangerous thing to do. And by enslavers, that term there is talking about people who would entrap people and make them slaves, which is a very, uh, actually rare thing in this system. Uh, And I'll I'll conclude on this, that the Greco-Roman's idea of slavery was very different from the one that we see in American history and in global history, okay? It was not the same. Uh, They did have some of that, but mostly what was like legal was actually people selling themselves into indentured servanthood, okay? And so even when we talk about the slavery, we're talking about a different thing here. And so some slaves actually had rights. Some of them were adopted into the family because they were so beloved, workers for that family. Some people even intentionally said, man, I'm in debt, and so this is my best option. I'm going to go into a good form of slavery, But even as I say that, we do need to keep in mind, Peter here is still addressing slaves of masters who are in some cases, these masters, awful and possibly even vicious. And so what he's saying is, I'm not here to upend the system. I'm here to teach you how to live in light of Jesus, regardless of what system you are in. And so here's what I would contend, that the better equivalent to this passage and how it plays out in our lives today, like how do we apply this passage to our lives? Well, here's how. Uh, We do that when we are in jobs that feel like slavery. (laughs) And all the people who are like working the line right now are like, yes and amen. And let me just tell you that I worked uh, at least one job that felt like slavery. And um, uh, let me just show you a picture here of uh, me in a space suit. This is me. And I am in the break room of a, this is just a couple years ago, by the way. Uh, And I'm I'm wearing a space suit here. I'm looking good, man. I sent this photo to my wife and she was like, you got to quit this job, bro. Every single morning, so I'm at, uh, this is at Safeway, I was like uh, working in the warehouse, um, and it was particularly in the freezer warehouse, and uh, so this job, you would literally like walk in, in this spacesuit, and it didn't matter how much clothing you wore, like when you're in that far b- below zero, when you walk in, there's just instantly like snot icicles. Coming down from here, I was like, Shh. I was like, oh, what is happening here? I don't even have a beard. Now I have like a snow beard. And I'm just like, whoa, this is so cold. And they're like, I had that headset on because on that headset, you have a master. And that master's like, go to A1 and pull this 200 pound box. And you're like, what? God? And you're like, Shh. and I'm like running. And you're supposed to run because you're timed. They had like a timer on you. And they're like, you had to make the time. And on top of that, you were inspired to run by the cold because you were just so freezing. And I'm running around. And the best part of this job is I would wake up in the morning and uh, I would call the, uh, like, the headquarters or whatever. And they would always tell us like, hey, you're, you're, you're like either on or you're off. And so I remember they would say in that, uh, like you would call at 3.30 a.m. or whatever before the 4 a.m. start time. And you'd be like, am I coming into work today? And the guy would say, yeah. And so like every morning you like didn't even know if you're gonna work. And so this job felt like slavery. <laughs> like I didn't wanna do this, but God had like just, just, just stirred me in passages like this. Like what you need to do is you, you need to honor this employer while you're here. You can get out of the slavery. 
right? And, and yes and amen. And, and yet he's saying you need to honor him. There was a dude uh, at Academy, Arise Academy yesterday, and he was like, he was like, man, I haven't got a chance to talk to you. I was like, what's up? And we're talking or whatever. He's like, yeah, I never get a chance to talk to you because you like preach. So then you're like Mr. Cool and you get off the stage and everyone wants to talk to you. And I'm like, I'm Mr. Cool. Because that was a picture of me, bro. <laughs> I'm not that cool. I'm in the spacesuit. We need to serve masters in a way that proclaims Jesus. Dorothy Sarah says this. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter, this is about work here. Our, our church, typically the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. That's what we tell the carpenter. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for the work that is not true to itself. And so he's calling us to just do good work here. And so we are to obey our employers, and we are to obey those who are over us. And lastly, he now takes this to the home. And in the least controversial part of this whole thing, as we conclude, he begins to talk about authority in the home and in marriage. It's domesticated. And here's what it says. First Peter 3, 1 through 7, looking at the text. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We're starting off good with this one. So that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting of gold and jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. How's that? Like, hey, Lindsay, Lord's here. You can call me Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. I just want to remind you, this is the text. This is not me, okay? I uh, opened this text the other day. I'm like talking to Lindsay. I'm like, I read it, and I was like, oh, man. Oh, man. And I looked at her. I was like, hey, I read her the text. I'm like, do you think you like subject yourself to me in accordance with 1 Peter, you know, chapter 3, 1 here? And she looked at me and she said, I feel like you're subject to me. <laughs> so I told her to submit. <laughs> Here's what Peter is not saying. I think it's very helpful to start off with this because a lot of times we want to take a passage like this and be like, thus says the Lord, like men are in charge. A lot of churches in history to be honest, have erred on this side. So we need to have a more robust and more full theological picture of what the relationship is between men and women, both in the family and society, amen? So he, here's what he's not saying. Let me start with that. He is not saying all women should just be submissive all the time to men who expect them to be. Amen? 
You guys agree with that? That's the lie of our culture. That's the lie of pornography. Women should just submit to men, all men. That's the lie of insecure men who cannot figure out how to actually lead through their loving influence. Like, women are not just subject to men. And so let me just clarify this. The ESV Global Study Bible says this. Men like J.I. Packer edited this. He says, Scripture never says that women in general are to be subject to men in general. It does support male headship in the home, and we need to get into what that is uh, in a moment here. And so, I, full picture theologically here, women are not to be passive, submissive, like non-contributors to the kingdom of God, but ferocious, godly, Jesus-following people full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? You say amen, it's okay. God's good, Jesus is alive, he has filled you women with his spirit. And I'm not noting this because I'm trying to push some like kind of soft liberal progressive agenda, okay? Like anybody who knows me would be like, he's for sure not doing that. They'd be like, he probably needs to cool down on his doctrinal intensity at times, honestly, so we're, we're stoked for this. But the truth is we need to think through this because this is not women just like be passive. The truth is if we were to read Romans 16 right now, he elevates and celebrates, that is Paul, elevates and celebrates the gospel influence, the gospel leadership, and the gospel work of women all throughout Romans 16. And most people who like doctrines like headship, like they love doctrine and so they love Romans and you'll hear them teach on Romans 1 and Romans 9 and Romans 8 and all this stuff. But like very few times you hear like, I heard this like gnarly teaching by my doctrinal dude on Romans 16 and the power of godly women. You just don't hear that. And so we need to push against that. Let me just give you what Romans 16 says. He elevates all these women. First of all, Phoebe. She is a servant and that word is actually translated deacon in the church who likely uh, actually carried the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. And so here's a, a lady that Paul trusts, and he's like, hey, bring God's word to them. And so she carries it to that church and gives it to them. That's Phoebe. He elevates her. Priscilla is a gifted teacher, fellow co-worker of Paul, who risked her own neck for Paul, putting her own life on the line as a teacher of the gospel for Paul and for whom he tells the church to give thanks. That's who uh, Priscilla is, Mary. He says she worked hard for the church in Rome. Junia was in Christ before Paul, he says in the text. She is a kinsman, family with him, and a co-worker to Paul, who suffered imprisonment for the gospel, and who was well known to all the apostles. This is Junia, uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa, I didn't know who this was. I had to like look up their names. It like, kind of sounds like male names maybe. Like maybe Tryphena, but Tryphosa, like which one? And, and both of them, these are in fact women in Romans 16. And uh, their names uh, mean dainty and delicate. Dainty and delicate were these two women, women who he ironically and intentionally in the text is like, but they're savages, bro. Like they worked harder than everybody for the Lord. Uh, Persis, also a female name in Greek, worked hard in the Lord. You guys see a pattern here? Should women just be passive? No, women should work hard to serve Jesus just like their male counterparts. And I love the last one, um, the mother of Rufus, who we think is actually the wife of the dude who carried the cross for Jesus. That woman 
in the Lord for sure before Paul. He says she ministered to him to the point that she was a mother to him. How awesome is that? And so women, John Piper says this to this exact question in light of passages just like this. He says, I just want to affirm, I just want to, no, he doesn't say I just want to affirm. This is his podcast and it's a transcription of it. I just want to so affirm that women and men are ministers. In no way does any biblical view of manhood and womanhood imply that men are out there and being active for Jesus and women are not out and about being active for Jesus or for Jesus um, or in and about being active for Jesus in their families. Women, no, we are to, you are to follow Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're to share the gospel. You should demonstrate holiness. This is what women are called to, and it's powerful and it's beautiful. And so we can't be saying that women are these soft, sort of submissive, uh, wallflower, jellyfish for Jesus who yield to whatever men want them to. No, what he's saying is, and here's uh, four things. What, what are the four things he is saying? Number one, in the context of the home, of the family, Wives should lovingly support and respect their husbands, verse one and two. They are to respect them in a way that wins them. Wives should win their lost husbands, not through external, but through internal beauty. And then he turns to the guys and he says, listen, men must honor their wives with gentle, self-giving love. This is a description of a gentle family where the woman leans in and trusts the man, and, uh, and hopefully he here in the second part is, is deserving of that because he's laying his life down for her, not, not abusing her or bullying her, but actually guiding her, asking her good questions, and leading her in the Lord, and taking responsibility, and cultivating her gifts in Jesus. And then she longs to follow him, and even if he doesn't know the Lord and maybe doesn't want to follow him, wins him over with pure and gentle character. And then lastly, men must consider the eternal weightiness of their leadership at home. I'm I'm not afraid to say that uh, in marriage, wives are to submit to husbands, and men are to lead their wives, if this is what we mean. Amen? If this is the picture of it. And so here's the truth, men, and this is what he kind of concludes with. You are responsible and you carry an eternal weight before Jesus for your home. And so men, carry that weight if you know Christ. If you don't know Christ, experience his leadership and then lead your family to Jesus. We aren't called, though, to do this all on our own strength. Like literally for the last like 40 minutes, I just told you, obey. Like, obey Jesus. And with this last minute I have, I just want to tell you this. You can't obey Jesus. We just, this whole passage is full of imperatives. You must obey Jesus. You must obey Jesus. You must show and shine forth Jesus. It's imperatives, right? You guys remember that from grammar? Like, and, and what I need you to see is the key to this passage is actually what I skipped over in 21 to 25. Because we cannot obey the imperatives of Jesus, which are intense, until we know the love of Jesus, the indicatives of Jesus, what he has done for us. Look at the text, 21. For to this you have been called. All this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, now get this, 
bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We are humbled church by his humility and you will not be able to obey until you know Jesus. Have you experienced the leadership of Jesus. Let me just tell you this. There is no authority on this earth like the authority of Jesus. It was Jesus, the very voice of God, who came forth in creation and heaven and earth spun into motion. That's the authority of Jesus. And then later when Jesus was on earth, they are shaken by him because he's asleep in the storm and he gets up and he commands the winds and the waves to obey by saying, hush. This is the authority of Jesus that when he was walking into Jerusalem and the Pharisees they shouldn't, said they shouldn't be worshiping you. He said, if they don't worship me, the very rocks will cry out. And then, how did Jesus, the most authoritative man on earth, ever use his authority? He used it by defeating the power of death itself through bowing down his head on that cross. That's how Jesus used his authority. He came under abuse. He came under the difficulty. He did it all for you. So that by his wounds, when you and I don't obey texts like this, our broken lives might be healed by his wounds. That our broken marriages might be healed by his wounds. When, so that our broken job situations, our broken responses to leadership might be healed in his wounds. His love for you moving towards you even when you have moved away from him through sin. He is our gentle shepherd, Peter says, and we are his sheep. And so my question as we conclude is do you trust the leadership of Jesus? I'm not calling you to trust the leadership of anyone else. We must submit not to them because we trust them, but because we trust him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are so many ways that we don't long to yield. There are so many situations that so many of us are struggling with. Maybe it's a difficult coworker or a difficult boss at work, and we're finding it hard to represent Jesus there. Or maybe it's the person who's, who doesn't know Jesus this morning who is struggling with all these very things, looking for hope. Lord, today I pray that they would find hope in your leadership over them, that we are the sheep and you are our gentle shepherd. May souls all over this room receive Jesus by faith today. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us and do a work. Do a work in our homes, do a work in our lives, do a work in our workplaces so that you may be known by the grace and the hope that is found in us. And all God's people said,